Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 2, Flint and Maze. In this first episode, we will be discussing the early appearance of Homo sapiens onto the American frontier, leading to the establishment of primitive settlements among the central Mexican valleys and rivers. These early settlements would develop hunting and agricultural practices that allowed them both the food surplus and time to develop advanced techniques, traditions, and works of art that we now identify as archetypically Mesoamerican, thus laying the groundwork for society to emerge. The earliest protagonists of our story, Los Olmecas, utilized these advancements to catapult their civilization into an early golden age. As the Olmecs traded with their contemporaries, a distinct rise of their culture began to spread, and a familiar doctrine of Mesoamerican religion would also take root. This promotion of trade and religion would lead to such well-known advancements as temples, pyramids, and ball courts that we find so typical of the cultures of Mexico and Central America. In order to fully appreciate what the Olmecs brought, however, we must first understand the world they changed. In our Mesoamerican timeline, the Olmecs existed in a period called the Pre-Classical or Formative. These periods are concerned primarily with societal advancements, specifically those that concern the cultures of ancient Mesoamerica. In this episode, I will also mention ages, which are concerned with technological advancements of humans on a global scale. I will do my best to not confuse you with the different ages and periods we will discuss, but to keep it simple, ages are technological and global, periods are societal and localized in our podcast, to early Mexican civilizations. There were two periods before the Olmecs were active, referred to as the hunter-gatherer period, which coincides with the Paleolithic age, beginning in roughly 50,000 BCE and ending around 10,000 BCE, and the Archaic period, picking up after the hunter-gatherer in 10,000 BCE and ending in 1200 BCE, coinciding almost neatly with the Neolithic age. To best remember the differences between these two periods, it's helpful to remember how the peoples that lived during each time acquired their food. Hunting during the first, then early plant domestication during the one that followed. This hunter-gatherer period is both the longest we will cover in our podcast and the one we know the least about, due to the utter lack of written anything to give us any clear picture of what actually went on back then. Thus, there will be much theorizing and speculation in this episode, backed by archaeological and anthropological research, but in the end, we will not be sure about anything until we get to about 500 BCE, when writing is really in full swing in the Americas. But the question still remains as to what actually happened back then that led to humans populating the Americas. Well, the most widely known theory, and the one you are likely familiar with, is that humans first arrived in the Americas sometime during the Pleistocene Ice Age between 30,000 and 15,000 years ago, depending on the site you believe is oldest. 
They presumably followed herds of ancient bison, mammoths, deer, elk, and other large herd animals across the Bering Strait, a 55-mile-long land bridge known as Beringia, connecting modern-day Siberia and Alaska's Seaward Peninsula, which would later sink back underwater. The most compelling piece of evidence unearthed in support of this theory are findings near Clovis, New Mexico, which show a fabulous collection of artifacts, including what is now commonly accepted as the earliest spear tips in North America. Radiocarbon dating on some of the bone and ivory points places them at approximately 13,000 years old. The technical name for these artifacts is actually projectile point, for reasons I think are self-explanatory. However, ancient Americans didn't just throw their spears, oh no. Instead, experts believe they launched them using what is called in Nahuatl an atlatl, or a stick-like tool utilizing leverage to propel a spear faster than is possible by hand. Experiments run by the Smithsonian Institute prove that the atlatl hurls spears at around 15 times the speed and 200 times the impact of hand-thrown spears. Needless to say, this deadly spear launcher would become a mainstay in Mexico until the Spanish arrived with gunpowder, rendering the majestic atlatl a relic of the past. Now these Clovis points, as the discovered spear points have been designated, can be found all along the American continent, from Alaska all the way down into Panama. They display chipped channels extending from a sharp point on both sides with some kind of flute or narrower base that attaches to the shaft of the spear, formed by the removal of long, narrow flakes, likely by chipping the flakes away with a heavier base stone at a certain angle to create the sharp, jagged edges necessary for their lethal task. These points were typically made out of flint, limestone, bone, or ivory, and have been uncovered in numerous sites across the American continent, like in the original Clovis, New Mexico site, and in such remains as those found in Arizona in what is believed to be a massive mammoth kill site due to the high concentration of mammoth bones found in the area and identified Clovis points uncovered nearby. Some of these animal bones found show clear signs of scraping, suggesting early humans were utilizing these points for more than just projectiles, but likely also skinning and butchering their kills, either on location or in the safety of some cave or natural shelter. Yet even among these early tools, we can already see the gradual progress of technology by the discovery of a more refined tip with smoother edges and flatter flutes, better suited to affix onto a spear shaft. Dubbed Folsom Points, they would arrive on the archaeological stage only a couple thousand years later. These specimens surpass the Clovis in almost every way, and so we already begin to see, even at this early time, humans refining the methods they utilized for generating food. This refinement of technique would likewise be applied to farming practices, allowing the food production to keep up with the steadily growing populations. At the time of their discovery, the Clovis people came to be regarded as the earliest inhabitants of the Americas, yet several sites discovered since have seriously challenged the Clovis First hypothesis. In the northeastern state of Piauí, Brazil, lies Pedra Furada, a collection of over 800 separate sites, some containing rock paintings dating to 12,000 years ago, 
while other sites show evidence of charcoals from primitive fires and stone fragments that some believe are tools, although the scientific community is not in consensus about the interpretation of what could just be a pile of broken rocks. What would make this discovery incredible, if true, would be their dating. Between 32,000 to 48,000 years ago, several thousand years before the Clovis. Another site in the province of Yanquiue, Chile, dated to around 14,000 years ago, known as Monteverde, likewise challenges the Clovis first theory by coming a full thousand years before Clovis and a considerable distance from New Mexico. We should also quickly mention the Chiquejuit cave discovered in Zacatecas, a central Mexican state, which is initially dated to some 33,000 years ago. While the Monteverde site appears to be the most reliably dated, it is still hotly debated on whether these sites display evidence of human activity or were naturally made. And while we may never know the real answer, it seems clear enough to me that due to the number, location, and dates of the sites discovered so far, we can safely question the validity of the Clovis first theory. Interestingly enough, these sites also challenge the most commonly accepted way these early peoples arrived on the continent, specifically the theory mentioned at the beginning, that early human hunting bands from Asia crossed the Bering Strait into Alaska on their endless quest for food. From here, early humans may have traveled south along the coasts, as massive ice sheets would have been covering what is modern-day Canada and continental USA. Meanwhile, the coasts would have had much less ice, and thus would have been easier to traverse. These early tribes might have hunted and settled the North American Pacific coast until they reached the warmer temperatures of Southern California and moved east into the interior to set up at sites such as Clovis, New Mexico, before turning south and establishing sites such as Chicoajit Cave in Zacatecas, then continued south into Monteverde and Pedra Furada, as well as all other subsequent sites. This theory is most commonly referred to as the interior route hypothesis, since it proposes that the first Americans took a path through the interior of the American continent after crossing the land bridge of Beringia and before turning south to populate Central and South America. For this theory to be true, either the dating of any site prior to 14,000 years ago is misdated and or caused by natural forces and not humans, or there is still some missing site left to discover that predates New Mexico, linking the Clovis directly to the earliest migrations into the landmasses through the northern part of the continent. I personally find both of these very unlikely. For while I do believe the Clovis people may have been some of the first successful settlers of North America, I don't believe their peoples preceded those of Monteverde, let alone the numerous older sites proposed. The timing and distances involved just don't seem to add up to a simple layman like myself. So, having shattered your common misconceptions on how humans came to populate the Americas, what have I left you with? Well, a few things. The most unlikely but interesting of which is the Solutrean Hypothesis. Proposed by Smithsonian archaeologist Dennis Stanford in 1999, it suggests that the Clovis may have received their technological breakthroughs from the Solutrean people who occupied southern France some 21 to 15,000 years ago. Most famous for the cave paintings they left behind, 
This theory postulates that early Solutrean mariners could have followed marine hunting routes across the sea and arrived in the packed ice of the North Atlantic Ocean. Upon arriving on the icy landmass, they would utilize Arctic survival skills displayed by modern Inuit tribes, eventually migrating south along the coast into warmer temperatures where we find heavier concentrations of Clovis sites and artifacts. I love this theory, mainly for its imagination, but alas, there is not much evidence to support it. Additionally, the likelihood that the members of the Salutrian civilization were everything, artists, early maritime hunters, toolmakers, boat builders, seafarers, and possessors of the skills required to survive in near-Arctic conditions to make this trek a success is incredibly slim. Best summed up by researchers Kirian Wesley and Justin Dix, quote, It is clear from the paleo-oceanographic and paleo-environmental data that the last glacial maximum North Atlantic does not fit the descriptions provided by the proponents of the Salutrian Atlantic hypothesis. Although ice use and sea mammal hunting may have been important in other contexts, in this instance the conditions militate against an ice edge following maritime adapted European population reaching the Americas. End quote. So it is likely not this Atlantic route, or the interior route. So what could explain sites of varying times in such distant locations popping up and down the American continental coastline? Well, perhaps the Salutrian hypothesis was on the right track, just in the wrong ocean. The Pacific Coast Route hypothesis agrees with the interior route model in that humans first entered through the western edges of the American continent. The glaring difference is how they traveled. Instead of walking, the people of this theory sailed. The existence of peoples and tribes on nearly every island of Oceania discovered by the Europeans in the early 19th century is evidence enough that humans are more than capable of traveling vast ocean distances and populating isolated islands without the use of modern technologies, quote-unquote. In fact, the Polynesian art of wayfaring has proven that methods such as tracking the movement of seabirds can reveal the locations of land and time-tested methods of navigation, such as tracking constellations, can render these ocean distances quite manageable, perhaps even for ancient humans. This theory suggests that the people of Pedra Furada, Monteverde, Chiquehuit, and Clovis all may likely share one or multiple common ancestors who landed somewhere along the Pacific coast, either in California, Baja, the southern Mexican coast, Central America, Chile, Peru, all or any of these sites could have been potential landing zones for the waves of settlers who discovered and began trading along their shores. This initial wave of settlement may have begun near central Mexico, suggested by the dating of some of the earliest sites such as Chiquehuit Cave in Zacatecas, and expanded both northwards and southwards simultaneously or in separate migrations. Furthermore, the ability of most Mesoamerican cultures to sail lends further credence to seafaring peoples first arriving on the continent through coastal settlements. Now while we are as unsure of this migration pattern as we are anything else, what sets this theory apart is a reoccurring feature in early humans' history, a plant. Specifically, a sea plant. In a 2007 article in the Journal of Island and Coastal Archaeology, 
a kelp highway hypothesis was proposed. This riff on coastal migration is based on the utilization of kelp forests along the Pacific Rim from Japan to Beringia, down through the coasts of the Pacific Northwest and California, then stretching south into the Andean coasts of South America. The paper goes on to mention how the coastlines of Alaska and British Columbia deglaciated some 16,000 years ago, and that these blooming kelp forests would have provided an ecologically homogeneous migration corridor, entirely at sea level and essentially unobstructed. These kelp blooms might have coincided or even triggered a human migration boom that led to the increasing diversity of locations in which we find possible remains. The biggest question any of these hypotheses face after the question of how they got to the continent is what food they ate to survive once they arrived. A big drawback to the viability of the interior route theory of crossing Beringia is that there may not have been enough supplemental food to maintain the human settlers making the trip. While the majority of early human diet was undoubtedly comprised of meat, this is not all they ate since meat alone cannot provide a human body with all the vitamins and minerals it needs to survive and function properly. It seems highly unlikely that the early peoples would have found enough supplemental roots, seeds, fruits, grasses, or even water to sustain themselves while crossing the frozen ice bridge of Beringia. The Pacific Coast theory, however, does stand up to this challenge, thanks to the possible existence of ancient kelp forests. Modern-day indigenous tribes in northwest Canada and the U.S. display a deep appreciation for ocean kelp forests, which create a habitat for dozens of creatures such as otters, seals, fish, and crab, to name but a few. The prehistoric tribes may have come to rely on these sources of food, as well as the kelp itself, to provide nutrients and materials for construction, weaving, and art. There are even modern tribes in the northwest United States who utilize the kelp pods for food and water storage. So primitive sailors who found this corridor would have been able to feed themselves as they traveled up and down the coast, allowing them to rapidly spread out in all directions and be provisioned and rested wherever they made landfall. This coastal migration theory also has a southern variation where ancient explorers first traveled from Asia into Antarctica which the theory posits may have been slightly less inhospitable than it is today. Following the familiar coastal model, they moved across the northern Antarctic coast until they had South America directly above them, at which point they sailed across once again and entered through the tip of the continent and populated along a south-to-north route. Now, while I find this theory fun and interesting in its own right, I think it as implausible as the Salutrian theory for many of the same reasons. Lack of a necessary skill set required to survive both an Arctic and maritime existence. Toss in a little sprinkle of even deadlier frozen wasteland than the Salutrians would have faced, and I can't imagine there would have been anything to draw early humans to Antarctic shores, let alone convince them to stay and explore its coastlines once they got there. And there are certainly no discovered Arctic kelp forests or similar source of nutrition to maintain any human populations, permanent or temporary, and no animals large enough to sustain human populations to speak of. So this theory also fails on the how are we going to feed ourselves once we get there question.
Ultimately, all of these hypotheses have their strengths and weaknesses, and until some of the earlier sites are fully examined and confirmed, we won't know the full story, and perhaps we never will. What is important to our narrative is that by 11,000 BCE, we are confident that humans were moving about the Americas, hunting megafauna or herds of Paleolithic animals to sustain their small nomadic tribes, with supplemental foraging done along the way. It is at this point you may be asking yourself, Julio, how in the world do they know the dates for these things? Well, I'll tell you, curious listener. Researchers nowadays utilize certain techniques to date organic or inorganic artifacts excavated at sites. Bone, charcoal, and sediment samples can be taken from the surrounding tools, soil, or rocks found at a site, and by utilizing two scientific techniques, the specimens can be analyzed and dated. The first method, and poster child for archaeological wizardry, is radiocarbon dating. Every living thing absorbs carbon while it's alive, and once it dies, it stops absorbing it and the carbon that it's accumulated up until that point begins to decay. Two types of carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-14, are necessary for this dating process. Carbon molecules decay through a process known as beta decay during which a neutron in the carbon molecule gains a positive charge and instead becomes a proton. The resulting carbon molecule thus then turns into a nitrogen. Knowing just how long it takes to decay half of all the carbon-14 molecules into nitrogen-14 within a sample is called its half-life, and this number is calculated given the number of remaining carbon-14 molecules. Carbon-12 molecules, on the other hand, do not beta decay, and their number stays the same. Thus, we can approximate how long ago a living thing died by calculating the change in ratio of carbon-12 to carbon-14 molecules. Now, in case you don't feel like running all of those calculations in your head, the number comes out to roughly 5,730 years for half of the carbon-14 molecules to turn into nitrogen-14 within a sample. Since its discovery in 1949 by its inventor, Willard Libby, the radiocarbon dating method has been used extensively in archaeology to approximate the age of organic material. Libby would publish his findings in the journal Science and introduced the Curve of Knowns. Within it, he compared the known age of artifacts with the estimated age as determined by his novel dating method. Libby's results would prove to be lying within narrow statistical range of the actual ages, and thus the accuracy of radiocarbon dating was proven. The effects this had on archaeology and geology cannot be understated. Most of what we know about the past is now verified using this reliable method, which has proven accurate for material as old as 50,000 years. The second of our scientific dating methods is a rising star in the field. Optically Stimulated Luminescence, or OSL, works by measuring when samples were last exposed to light. This process is hopefully a bit easier to wrap your head around. By irradiating an excavated sample and exposing it to the proper optical stimulation, a light signal is emitted proportional to the dosage absorbed by the sediment. Researchers then analyze the emitted light's wavelength to approximate the last time the tested sample was exposed to natural light. See? Super easy, right? 
This photon dating method may not be as well known as its more famous carbon cousin, but it does provide an advantage radiocarbon lacks. It does not require organic material to measure. Thus, we can reliably measure the soil and stones of sites where human activity is being investigated. Thanks to this method, if archaeologists ever find a footprint with no foot to go along with it, they can still approximate when the missing foot might have taken its step. By utilizing both methods in tandem, we can get a much clearer picture on the dates of samples on Earth. But it is still not an exact science, and various factors could have a disruptive influence on the dating of a sample, such as environmental and meteorological factors, as well as human factors of both the site robbing and hoax varieties. Now all this is to say that we may not know precisely when humans first entered the Americas. But we can have a pretty good picture as to what they were up to when they got here, as evidenced by the most common artifacts found dated to this time, projectile points and animal bones. For thousands of years, it's clear that early humans hunted the land in roving packs, and this happened in the variety of ways you would imagine. What is not certain, however, is how the transition from hunting to farming took place. One theory is that early humans began returning to familiar caves or sheltered sites intermittently throughout thousands of years, most likely to escape whatever cataclysmic weather phenomenon Mother Nature decided to throw at them. These pit stops must have been critical pauses in which to gather strength, maybe tend to wounds and rest, perform bonding rituals in order to strengthen familial and social bonds, share and tell stories, plan future hunts, celebrate, mourn, and overall recuperate before heading back out to the harsh realities of their nomadic existences. The discovery of Ice Age mammoths, bears, sloths, rodents, deers, bats, waterfowl, and bison could be an indication of the hunting exploits of these people groups, or simply an emphasis on the viability of these caves as a refuge from the more severe weather patterns occurring outside for any living creature to have to face. We can thus imagine the first human lives were much closer to those of the animals they hunted, as both predator and prey sought refuge from the same harsh elements during these hard prehistoric times. Whatever the real story, the ancient Paleo-Indians lived tough existences, maintaining themselves off the land much like the prey they hunted, leaving behind very little at these sites, leaving us to assume they either did not spend very much time here or had precious few possessions to leave behind in the first place. This process of hunting the wilds and returning to established resting sites intermittently seems like it played out countless times over thousands of years, with small advancements trickling into the archaeological record, such as the Clovis to Folsom Point advancement, to name just one. And as it stands, this is our best theory on how the technological lithic age progressed possibly lasting from about 50,000 BCE till 10 or 9,000 BCE, the ancient humans hunted herds of large herbivores with stone or bone tools and the occasional short-term cave settlement popping up here or there. The bones of these megafauna have been discovered in most states of Mexico, such as a complete woolly mammoth skeleton that now sits in the Regional Museum of Guadalajara which was discovered in Catarina, Jalisco, another state in central Mexico. We can safely conclude then that megafauna spread into these regions, allowing early man to follow and thus hunt them. 
Recently, there was also discovered evidence of human-built mammoth traps in Tultepec, just north of Mexico City, dated to some 15,000 years ago. This discovery, coupled with the many projectile point discoveries previously mentioned, means it's safe to assume that the Paleo-Indians were getting their hunt on in the Lithic. Lithic age, by the way, is a technological classification of time, as previously mentioned, and it comes from the Greek word for stone. So from this we get the famous nickname, the Stone Age. While on the subject, the Lithic Age is actually divided into two subdivisions which you've heard me use already, the Paleolithic and the Neolithic Age, with Paleo meaning old or ancient, and Neo meaning new. So Paleolithic really means Old Stone Age, while Neolithic means New Stone Age. The transition from Paleo to Neo comes around 10,000 BCE, which we will talk about in a minute. Now, as mentioned in the beginning of this episode, these designations don't always translate neatly into the Mesoamerican historical timeline that we got going for us. So instead of the Paleolithic Age, we will try to refer to it as the cumbersome yet effective hunter-gatherer period. Likewise, the Neolithic Age will be the Archaic period for us, and the Pre-Classical or Formative periods will be the Mesoamerican world's Bronze Age. One main reason for this distinction is that the Bronze Age does not do us much good in the Americas, since what little metallurgy the Mesoamerican cultures could muster was a far cry from the Bronze Forges blasting in Africa, Europe, China, and the Indian subcontinent during the same time. But let's try not to get bogged down in the minutia too much. Just to clarify, 50,000 to 10,000 BCE, we got the Paleolithic Age, which is hunter-gatherer period to us, and they hunted and gathered with primitive stone tools. 10,000 to 2,500 BCE is the Neolithic Age, where they began using more advanced stone tool methods, now not just for hunting, but also for farming, which to us will be known as the Archaic Period. Meanwhile, the years between 2500 BCE and 250 CE is our New World's Bronze Age, known as the Formative Period and revolving around the formation of a culture into a full-fledged civilization. Think the time period of the Olmecs, but not yet the Maya, who would come to define the Classical Age that came after. Got all that? Great. Let's move on. Some of these early hunter-gatherer groups in the Americas would leave behind evidence of a new method of hunting through what was essentially primitive landscaping, proving the timelessness of human ingenuity. This new method involved setting fire to heavily forested areas which would burn away all of the overgrown underbrush, leaving behind rich soil where small grasses could flourish in the absence of their taller cousins. These resulting meadows would prove ideal feeding grounds for the hungry herds that the hunters would eagerly welcome. No doubt the tribes that practiced these methods of land development found it much easier to find food year after year without needing to waste all of the precious energy it took finding and tracking it in the first place. In my mind at least, these early landscaping practices must have had some influence in the development of the more advanced farming techniques of the later archaic peoples. It also seems possible to me that the early men and women participating in these activities might have begun to familiarize themselves with the plants they were constantly observing the Paleolithic herds eating. 
they may have possibly done this to the point where they began recognizing the plants they chose or avoided in order to promote the proper vegetation. It isn't too much of a stretch of my imagination to picture ever-curious humans in an effort to understand why certain plants were or were not selected began to taste the plants themselves, potentially leading to the discovery of early wild corn or squash strains, which they then began to domesticate in the very meadows they had just finished clearing, thus laying the seed, if you will, for their coming reliance on the vegetation. From this highly speculative position, we can imagine these early peoples as America's first field researchers and botanists, attempting to unlock the secrets of plants long before they were domesticated by observing how animals behaved around them and testing the plants and grasses on themselves. The manipulation and understanding of the environment is a keystone feature of any early civilization's development, and through these slash-and-burn techniques, we can make out the possible threads that link the hunter-gatherer of the Paleolithic to the farmer of the Neolithic. Unfortunately, as with most things in this episode, there is precious little hard evidence to support this theory. But if human ingenuity back then was even a fraction of what it is now, then I strongly believe in the likelihood of at least one primitive scientist curiously sticking grass in their mouth just to see what it tasted like. Eventually, this golden age of the megaherds would come to an end, as environmental factors would drastically thin their numbers, forcing ancient Mesoamericans to find a new way of feeding themselves. The answer would introduce a still active member of the staple Mexican diet, maize. Now, to talk about maize, we must also talk a little bit more about the time period in the Americas known as the Archaic. The Archaic period is meant to denote the earliest phases of culture. In this case, the incorporation of farming techniques directly contributed to the formation of primitive social structures and hierarchies, until eventually a full-blown society such as the Olmecs was established. It is equally important to recognize the role this crop domestication would have in laying the groundwork for the intricate trade networks that would be key in the early spread of Olmec culture in the following pre-classical period. We will get back to the importance of corn here shortly, but to understand one of the theorized causes for this change from hunter-gatherer period to formative, we must understand the Earth's geological changes, which are classified as epochs. Up to this point, we have been discussing events taking place exclusively in the Pleistocene epoch, and we will now be entering the one we currently live in, the Holocene. Epochs, as mentioned, are geological classifications of time in which the Earth undergoes global geological events, most often triggering dramatic environmental and climactic changes. The term Pleistocene is derived from the very rough translation of the ancient Greek word Pleistos, meaning most, and Kanos, Latinized into Cenus, or new. You may also know this epoch by its colloquial name, the Ice Age, due to the massive sheets of ice that covered most of the land masses in the Northern Hemisphere. Well, sometime around 2.5 million years ago, the planet started to get really, really cold which led to the aforementioned ice sheets forming across the globe. Then, some 12,000 years ago, it stopped getting cold and started to warm back up. 
Glaciers started to melt, rising both sea levels and tropical temperatures, and the large herds perfectly evolved to thrive in this environment began to lose the vast plains of grasses they fed on, and their numbers dramatically declined, a rate not helped by the incessant hunting practices of the early American settlers. As the Pleistocene melted away, our current age, the Holocene, would begin, with hollow meaning entirely recent in Greek, and thus, having left the mostly recent age, we currently live in the epically sounding entirely recent age. Isn't naming fun? This geological shift would push the early people into one of their greatest developments ever, the domestication of crops. This is an equally important aspect in the evolution of early civilizations, and indeed we see wild cereals in Mesopotamia, rice in East Asia, and corn in Mexico as the staple crops that enabled sedentary life. And despite what anyone will tell you, it is actually the humble squash that likely holds the record for oldest Mexican crop in domestication. Nevertheless, these little seeds would come to shape and enable nearly every facet of societal advancement to come. It is around 10,000 years ago that we believe the first true signs of crop domestication occurred along Mexico and South America. This agricultural revolution in American farming techniques, like those occurring in Europe, Africa, and Asia, was due in part to the proximity along riverbanks, which has proven a key ingredient of permanent human settlements. These rivers would often overflow due to seasonal rains, and once the waters receded, would deposit sediment, rich in vitamins and minerals, into the surrounding fields, which early farmers would come to discover produced the biggest yields. A few key factors differentiated cultivation and domestication in the New World, that is, the Americas, and the Old World, that is, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Old World farmers had access to cows, pigs, sheep, and goats to provide food, milk, leather, or wool, as well as burden animals such as oxen, horses, and camelids to carry heavy loads. Because of the Old World's farmers' ability to work with beasts of burden, the wheel would be developed and utilized to truly master the agrarian lifestyle on the plains. New World farmers, on the other hand, had only small dogs and turkeys to supplement the occasional deer and rabbit, and due to the lack of any large animals to carry heavy weights like bronze or people, the wheel would not make its appearance in the Americas until the Spanish rolled it over in 1518 CE. Upon hearing of this technological disparity, it's easy to attribute this as the reason that the Mesoamerican cultures fell so quickly to the Europeans, lack of proper technology and tools. But as we will see, this is merely a vestige of a very prejudiced view of these early cultures, and the factors that led to the collapse of these mighty empires are far more complex and varied than they simply lacked technological advancements like the wheel or gunpowder. These circumstances certainly helped the Spanish cause, but did not give a complete picture of the events as they transpired, and will be a topic we talk much about later on in our narrative. Moreover, if you really think about it, the fact that these people didn't have wheels should make their vast transportation, trade, and organization networks, as well as their construction projects and monuments, on par, if not more impressive than those of their old world counterparts. Let's not forget that the largest pyramid in the world was built in Mexico without any of these quote-unquote superior tools. As we will see with the Maya, the practice of building pyramids was well underway by the time they were around, 
and all accomplishments were made without the use of heavy burden animals or tools, such as the wheel. Ultimately, it is the early farming that is really the defining feature of the Archaic period, as this period is mostly a placeholder for the more innovation-packed times that will follow. During this hazy period in human history, we find evidence of people beginning to construct more permanent villages or returning to pre-established points. One such example is Gila Nakwitz, a rock shelter discovered in the valley of Oaxaca, a state in the southern Pacific coast of Mexico. It shows evidence of occupation at least six times between 8000 and 6500 BCE by a single or many nomadic groups. These groups left behind relatively equal numbers of both animal and crop remains within the cave. The increasing number of agricultural artifacts such as corn seeds, husks, and cobs found at this site, coupled with the decreasing number of projectile points and animal bones, clearly indicates the gradual shift in food production we would expect to see with the decline of huntable herbivores and the onset of farming. We can imagine this site served a similar role to that of the Chicahuit Cave, as an occasional home base that saw increasing use and thus was possibly elevated to semi-permanent by the rise of agricultural practices in response to ecological shifts. And thus we must go back to the fields to discuss what was discovered in these caves. So lend me your ears, dear listener, as we talk about corn. The word maize is actually of Taino origin, the Taino being the original inhabitants of the Caribbean islands who first encountered Christopher Columbus and his Spaniard expedition. Upon arriving, the explorers must have asked the locals what this thing they were all eating was called, to which the Taino likely replied, mahis, and thus we have the Spaniardized maize. But the humble mahis did not begin its life in the form we today know and love. It in fact began as a wild grass more commonly known as a teocinte. Corn, along with all teocintes, belong in the genus Zea, a group of flowering plants in the grass family, including its best known member, Zea maius, and four wilder members, Zea diplorenis, Zea luxurianis, Zea nicaragüensis, and Zea perennis. Like all the members of its genus, Zea maius produces pollen tassels or ears, which are the parts that get fertilized to produce kernels, which are themselves actually hundreds of tiny fruits encasing an even tinier seed within each one. A key difference to keep in mind is that wild tocintes propagate naturally, while maize is a cultigen, meaning it requires human-assisted fertilization and planting to propagate. A kernel falling or not falling off the cob on its own is one of the ways archaeobotanists identify a domestic maize from a wild tocinte. The domesticated maize has sadly lost the ability to drop its own seeds, which is why humans must do all of the reproductive work for it. A small price to pay, it seems, for the benefits this humble plant offers. Once mature, the ears can be harvested and the kernels eaten off the cob as is, but are most often cooked in some way or other. Corn kernels can be processed into a vast assortment of valuable resources, from foods such as flour and masa to make breads and tortillas, to oils, syrups, starches, animal feed, and even biofuels and alcohols, to name just a scant few. Even the husks and cobs can make an appearance in food and artwork, 
such as corn husks used to steam tamales or woven into useful items, such as fans, baskets, or hats, among others. It is no wonder, then, that most cultures had a god associated with the maze. In the Olmec's pantheon, it was a baby-like deity. By the classical period of the Maya, we see a dedicated god of maize who went through various iterations and was included in their creation myth, while the Aztecs believed the maize deity to be a female figure. In fact, various other cultures in the Mesoamerican world would come to worship corn in one way or another, and it is one of the most diverse deities to be found in Mexico. To this day, corn continues to be looked on with great national pride by the Mexican people, as various corn festivals are often celebrated throughout the nation, while each state and region proudly promotes their own variation of this highly versatile crop. Presently, there are 59 recognized varieties of native corn in Mexico, 55 in Peru, and 10 in the U.S. Corn is most commonly seen in its yellow variety, but it can come in all ranges of colors, including purple, white, and blue, and all with differing shapes, sizes, and properties. Corn is also the most produced grain in the world, with 1.2 billion tons of it produced in 2021 alone. It is also the most widely grown crop throughout the Americas, with 384 million metric tons grown in the U.S. alone in the same year. I fully intend to do a supplemental episode all about corn, so I won't dive too far into the mythology or fun facts revolving this all-important vegetable. But needless to say, there is much to talk about in regards to the impact maize has had on the cultures it nurtured in the past and continues to feed in the present. The first successful efforts in maize domestication are believed to have occurred some 9,000 years ago, either in the Tehuacan Valley of Mexico, nestled between Tlaxcala, Puebla and Oaxaca, or the Balsas River Basin, a zone stretching across Puebla, Morelos, and Guerrero. Whichever is the true first site is still hotly debated, but the central Mexican valley remains the likeliest center for domestication, which, after its development in the valleys of central Mexico, spread both north and south into the more remote tribes of the Americas, where the corn they began to eat and plant would diversify into the myriad of forms we see today thanks to its relative isolation from other varieties. A study done by the Brazilian Agricultural Research Corporation suggests that domesticated corn and its cultivation were introduced into South America from Mexico in two separate waves, one more than 6,000 years ago through the Andes and another 2,000 years ago through the lowlands of South America. This second wave is of particular interest to us as it may be these early trade networks centered on the surpluses and varieties of maize that forged the early connections between the pre-Olmaic civilizations and those of the South American lowlands, which would support the rise and spread of Olmec society and culture in the centuries to come. Our maize odyssey continues into Guerrero, a state south of Mexico City where an 8,700-year-old layer of deposit found in a cave in Iguala held stone milling tools with maize residue on them. And thus, we return to the Gila Naquitz cave in the Oaxaca Valley, where the remains of early maize ears were unearthed, dated to 6,250 years ago. As we now hopefully understand, this is strong evidence for the domestication of not only the plant, but of the hunter as well. While we are still finding the occasional projectile points possibly used for hunting, 
We are also seeing evidence of a more equal number of tools used for farming-related activities, such as grinding instruments like mortars and pestles to produce flour, which were increasingly prevalent. However, the true story of how a tocinte became corn may never really be known, and the mystery is made deeper still by the fact that the kernels of a tocinte, due to their size and toughness, are not exactly edible. Attempts have been made to prove that tocinte kernels can be popped like popcorn for human consumption, however. So maybe some early Paleo-Indian used ancient tocinte stalks to feed a fire, at which point the kernels may have begun popping out of said fire and the curious human in question popped that kernel into their mouths, thus creating the world's first batch of popcorn. Whatever the real truth, by about 4,500 years ago, we see verified maize remains in the north at sites in New Mexico and Arizona, and south in the Andes and South American lowlands. While we may not know where maize domestication began or how, we do know where it was perfected and had the greatest impact, the river floodplains of Tabasco and southern Veracruz. As is the case with the Nile in Egypt, the Tigris and Euphrates in Mesopotamia, the Yellow River in China, and the Indus River in India, rivers typically provided the best land for early civilizations to cultivate. Meanwhile, in Mexico, the Coatzacoalcos, Tonala, Papaloapan, Usumacinta, and Grijalva rivers in modern-day Veracruz and Tabasco served just fine for the early Olmecs and their settlements. The alluviated soil massively improved farming yields, while the waterways allowed the Olmecs to establish a vast trading network into the interior of Mexico and Guatemala, which, at its heights, stretched from Mexico City to Panama and facilitated in the spread of Olmecs' influence throughout the lands they flowed through. Along these river systems, we see many sites, and not just of the Olmecs, but of various tribes and peoples, while the proximity to rivers would be a consistent feature in most Mesoamerican cities and capitals. The Olmec sites of San Juan Teotihuacan and La Venta, along with others, will be described in more detail in the episodes dedicated to the Olmecs. We should also keep in mind our understanding of epochs as well, and how the weather was beginning to shift towards a hotter, wetter, more rainy climate, which would have predictable effects in a tropical state such as Tabasco. Back then, these floodplains would become the most fertile lands on the American landmasses, packing more nutrient potential per square foot than any other place in the Americas. There is no doubt in my mind that this played a significant role in the early rise and dominance of the Olmecs. This alluviated, ultra-fertile soil is key since it allowed for the stratification of societies to develop. Those ex-hunters turned farmers may have eventually grown enough of a surplus in crops, thanks to the flooded plains they utilized, to begin focusing on other projects. Some altruistic, like artwork or innovation, others less so, such as religious mysticism and warfare. This surplus would inevitably allow some, likely the first among them being those that held on to their pointy projectile points, to be able to accumulate enough food to pay others to work their land rather than work it themselves. What may have started out as benevolent efforts to help family members and fellow tribesmen administer and run more effective methods of farming and harvesting likely also began with obsolete hunters utilizing their physical presence to take control of the food operation. 
This may have eventually turned the whole situation into a master-servant dynamic very quickly. The nascent elite class would thus be able to produce, own, and control larger and larger surpluses, expanding their influence over their contemporaries and allowing for greater trading power with distant entities and powers. Eventually, these surpluses would allow the wealthiest families or individuals to trade for aesthetic items of value rather than items for subsistence or survival, such as fancy shells from a very faraway place or a cup or pot used for religious rituals made by a tribe in some remote mountain. One can easily imagine how this system could develop into a hierarchy of a few elite families at the top and many producers at the bottom working towards the aesthetic enrichment of the elites. This process would accelerate with the introduction of religion and the promotion of artwork and rituals in the Olmec society. The development of many of the hallmarks of Mesoamerican society would all come from the Olmecs and their cornfields. Art, jaguar cults, maize production and worship, pyramid building, ball games, and the practice of bloodletting and sacrificing, just to name a few. These developments were all made possible by the surplus of crops, most importantly maize, and thanks to the development of increasingly complex agricultural practices. We will continue to see this pattern of surplus allowing the elites to promote their brand of religion in order to establish their network of influence play out a few more times before the Spanish come along and change the whole ballgame. However, the ripples that are the Olmecs will be felt in every culture we touch on from this point, and these ripples were undoubtedly started by a humble seed. All the cultures to come will try to replicate the Olmecs in one way or another, who they saw as mythical precursors preceded only by the gods and other mythological forces. And so, having reached this earliest point in the discussion of the Olmecs history, we have also reached the end of the Archaic and our discussion of the periods that preceded them. In this episode, we explored the origins of human settlement in Mexico and the potential paths they took from the Asian continent to the American plains, hunting and gathering along the way. Eventually, at the turn of the epoch, some 10,000 years before present, they had to shift their main method of food production from hunting to farming, which led to the domestication of many plant species, most importantly corn. The Archaic would itself come to a close some 2,500 years ago with the dawning of the Olmec civilization and the spread of their culture from central and southern Mexico all the way through Guatemala and into Panama, setting off the pre-classical or formative period. This domestication allowed for food surpluses, which in turn allowed for a stratification of society to develop, with an elite class that ruled the producer class through religious rituals and mysticism, leading them to dominate the trade networks of the countless interconnected waterways found along the fertile Tabasco lowlands. In the next episode, we will describe these riverlands and the state that holds them, Tabasco, as well as its history. After that, we will continue to explore the Olmecs, describe what made them great, what they did when they were around, and then what happened to them, their decline, and their legacy. So please stay tuned. Thank you for listening. Y que viva bien. Adiós and goodbye for now.